Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Acts chapter 8 is where we're at. We're finally back in the book of Acts, and we're going to take a rather large section here. Um, From this point on, most of our sections will be larger as we're just dealing with the story of the book of Acts. We're in chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading for you verses 9 through 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. He says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, and they all from greatest to small, or smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astounded them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly astounded. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard about that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you suppose you obtained the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray earnestly to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. There was a book that was written in the 1600s by a Puritan named Matthew Mead, entitled The Almost Christian Discovered. And in that book, he speaks much of the fact that a person can have much knowledge of the things of God without ever actually having the grace of God that saves them. To be a genuine Christian, then, is not merely the idea of professing to believe or to be a person who partakes of religious activities such as church attendance, baptism, or even serving. 
Rather, it's a person who sees that in themselves there is no good thing that will save them. There is not even a good thing in themselves that will help save them. Rather, salvation and forgiveness of sin is found only in and through Jesus Christ. Now, when you talk about an almost Christian, that's a Christian, a person who looks like they're a Christian. They're almost a Christian, but they're not actually a Christian. Usually, they're very dangerous. But there's one example, if you wish to turn there, um, in Acts 18, that was not a dangerous one. Um, This one is a man named Apollos. Remember, I've been teaching you in the book of Acts that the whole book is a transitional book, all sorts of unique things, sometimes once uh, things that will happen only once or twice, uh, because everything's in transition. Christ has come, he died, he rose again, the church is born, and now people who believed in Yahweh, the true God of the Old Testament, and they were waiting for his Messiah, not all of them have heard about Jesus fully. They don't know all of the facts of the gospel, but they're believers. We would call them Old Testament believers or, or God-fearing Gentiles, men and women who have placed their trust in the one true God. Yet, they don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just a strange time where now people are there and they're, but they're not all the way there. And this is what Apollos is. In verse 24, it says, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, arrived in Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So when we first see him here, he understands teachings regarding Jesus, but he was only aware of the baptism of John, John the Baptist. So he knew that the Messiah had come, and he knew what the scripture of the Old Testament taught about the coming Messiah, and he knew about those things, but he did not fully understand all of it. And so what Priscilla and Quilla, this dear couple who loved the Lord, is they did not accept him as he was, but they did not reject him either. What they did is they brought him into their home and they instructed him more fully so that he could see the fullness of what the gospel was and he could come and rest fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we see that that happened because afterwards they send him out with blessing and he goes and the the churches receive him. And now what he's beginning to do is show that not just things about Jesus, but that he is the promised Messiah. So here's a man, if you would, that's almost a Christian and then becomes a Christian by God's grace. But the list of those who appeared to be genuine believers and followers of Jesus Christ, but proved that they were not really followers of Christ is actually quite common in the scripture. 
You can think about Judas. Judas is a prime example. He was a man who walked with Jesus, called a disciple of Jesus, even did miracles with Jesus. But ultimately, he was found to be a man who was a liar and a lover of money, all the while claiming to love Jesus. He is known as the son of perdition, the son of hell, for that was his end. You have a man named Damas in 2 Timothy 4. It's a man who ultimately loved this world and abandoned the faith, yet you'll find his name cropping up frequently as a faithful man. And yet ultimately, in the end, he chose the world and he abandoned In 1 Timothy 1, you have Hymenaeus and Alexander who are described as blasphemers who shipwrecked their faith. You have two books, the book of Jude and 2 Peter. Both of them are devoted to specifically dealing with those who claim to be believers but who are in fact false. And And they're dealt with in the most harshest of ways. The book of Hebrews is filled with warning after warning after warning of apostasy, of of denying of Christ and turning your back on the things of Jesus Christ or the falling away of the faith. To be an almost Christian is actually rather common and easy. Well, what we have today is a story placed before us by uh, by Luke to show us what it looked like as people began to flee out of Jerusalem because of the persecution by Saul, who would later become Paul the Apostle. He's oppressing the church in Jerusalem. They're fleeing for their lives. And as they go, the scripture said that they left, but they carried the gospel on their lips. And so now in this section, what we do is we zero in on a man named Philip. Now, who's Philip? Philip is known as one of the seven Uh, The seven are the seven men in Acts 6. We looked at them before, and they were selected godly men full of the Holy Spirit. These were godly, trustworthy men who were selected to oversee the care of the widows so that they would not be overlooked. These were men who were trustworthy, and some of these men were also excellent teachers. Two of them, specifically a man named Stephen, who was killed, right, the first martyr, And the second is Philip. He also was an evangelist and had a burden for the gospel. And so they're here, and what what happens is we encounter one who hears the gospel that Peter or, or Paul, Philip, is preaching, and he appears to believe. And he's being treated as a believer, but in the end, he's found to be false. He's like too many, he's just an almost Christian. And as an almost Christian, he had a great impact upon human history. In fact, a term was coined because of this man, Simon. It's the word simony, if you've ever heard of that. Simony is the buying and selling of religious indulgences and favors. It is the idea that I can make money by by selling certain things of religious things. I'll do a special prayer for you. I'll come over and give you communion, this or that. You give me money, I'll take care of you. One of the things I, I have made a point to do is I never charge for a funeral. You want to 
give a, a, a token of appreciation, that's up to you, but I'll never ask you for it. And I've had many a person who will say, hey, I need a funeral done, and how much do you charge? Well, I don't charge. That's not in the business for making money. But there are men out there in our city today who they let make a nice bit of coin doing nothing but funerals for anyone who wants it, and they have a certain fee, and they charge it with no shame. And that's all the idea of simony. It's what the Roman Catholic Church did when they sold and bought indulgences. This is not a small situation. Simon is an example of an almost Christian. So with that in mind, we're going to spend the rest of our time just walking through the story. That's the best way to preach a story in the Bible is let the story tell its story. We see, first of all, Simon being introduced to us in verses 9 through 11. Now, I won't read that again. I just did, and you can read it as I go along. But he is described as being a man who is a worker of magic. In fact, you could call him a magi, which most of you know. The magi were the, the three kings, supposedly, who came and, and visited Christ when he was young, and they brought gifts. The magi were magicians. The Magi originally came from a place called Persia. You and I know of it as Iran. And were those who were experts in the working of magical and astrological arts. They had incredible power and incredible influence. In Babylon, the Magi were very powerful. They influenced the king, and you can read about them in the book of Daniel, and they, he kept them nearby, and he would seek their advice. And when he had dreams, he'd ask them to give a meaning. And God even used all of that to bring Daniel, the prophet, to a high place in that kingdom. The Magi were not people to ignore. But as various kingdoms would rise or fall, these magicians would be taken captive and brought to the kings. Every king wanted a magic a user. Everyone wanted somebody like that. That whole idea of Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table, that's that concept. Everyone looks for that one who is a seer of the divine and hidden things. So these magicians would be brought and, and brought before the various kings as various empires were built. And so in the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, these magi out of Babylon would have been brought in. They would marry, they'd have kids. And what they would also do is teach not only their offspring, but others who were willing to spend money on it. They would teach them these magical arts. And that's likely how ultimately Simon ended up in the city of Samaria. Now, he claims for himself in this passage, in 9 through 11, he claims himself to be a great man. So that tells you a bit about him right now. He's the great, he says, I'm a great man. And though his use of, ma- or through his use of magic, he's able to keep the attention upon himself. In fact, it says that many were astonished at his power, his Things, the things that he was doing. So notice in verse 9, he's astounding the people of Samaria. So whatever he's doing, it's not just card tricks. This is always the way of religious charlatans, though. It's really all about them. It's all about their work, their reputation, their fame. It want, they want the focus on them because they're the great ones. 
In fact, he was essentially deified. He was made to be like a god. Notice verse 10. This man is what is called the great power of God. Well, what's going on there? Well, in the Greek and Roman cultures where gods uh, were considered, very, they, consider, they were considered to have various powers. Not the great true God or the supreme God, but then you had these lesser gods who were expressions of the power of God. Well, he's not just an expression of one power. He is the great power of God. And in that, he, he is making himself, he doesn't say to them, no, no, don't worship me. No, don't look at me that way. I am not that. Instead, he's the kind of man who's bring it upon himself because all it does is enriches him and feeds his, uh, his um, sense of greatness. But though Simon perceived by both himself and others to be great, he was not great. In fact, he's just like you and I. He's like all men and women. He's a sinner. But though he was not great, he was happy to take on the, pow- the, the title of the great power. But then in verse 12, a different power comes into the story. But when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. Now who's astounded? Look down and see. It's Simon's the one now. So he's astounding all the people of the city with his great power. Now Philip comes walking into the scene, and he's preaching and doing things with great power himself. And Simon looks at his power, and he's the one who's astounded. So now something is happening. A new power has come into the picture because Philip, who was fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem, has come to the city, but not to hide. He came to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now we're seeing the true power of God, the gospel, and it begins to do its work. And also we find that God God had granted him the ability to do these great uh, miracles. And in all of this, we can continue on with the story of an almost Christian exposed. Now let me pause to explain a little bit about what everyone is believing, because it's part of the story, but it's not the central part. Notice in verse 12 that Philip's proclaiming the good news, the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that just a little bit. First, the good news about the kingdom of God. You cannot disconnect that from the name of Jesus. The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus come together. But we'll talk first about the kingdom of God. It's the fact that God's kingdom is being established. The promises of the Old Testament are, are coming about a coming king who would make all things right are necessarily found in the person of Jesus. But it's also seen in the miracles that Philip is doing. Some of you will remember the story where Jesus said to his disciples that some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And the very next event that happens is that he uh, takes 
three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain where he is transfigured, meaning he changes, and basically he peels away his humanity that they might see a bit of his glory. And it says that he's shown with a great brightness, so to the point that the, the men were terrified, terrified of what they were looking at. This is not a meek and mild one. And what makes it even more fascinating is uh, Moses and Elijah end up showing up there and they're all talking. And this was an expression of the kingdom of God. They were now seeing not the mild servant Jesus, they were seeing the mighty king. And so in that you see the kingdom of God and what he was talking about. That this kingdom of God is pushing back the deeds of darkness and some of that's manifested in the miracles. Second, he was emphasizing the name of Jesus. Now, this is another thing that goes wrong a lot today. The idea of the name of Jesus is not a magical charm. It's not an utterance like you see in so many events, like, get behind me, uh, I, I say the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and you see people pronouncing it like that, as if somehow, if I just say the name Jesus, that the word itself is almost magical with its power. That's not what the name means. So-called faith healers love to declare loudly that in the name of Jesus, a demon of blindness will come out or a bad leg will be healed. Again, it's just treating it like a magic charm, but it actually, the actual meaning is far from that type of use. When it talks about the name, it talks about his authority and reputation and character and essence. Whenever you talk about, you defame my name, if you were to defame my name, what you're doing is you're tearing down who I really am. And when you speak of my, in my name, what you're doing is you're accurately representing what I would believe or what I was. Well, how much more than the name of Christ? When you speak of the name of Christ, you're talking about who he is, what he is, what he represents in all of its glory. And so it speaks of Jesus as king, the promised one of the Old Testament that God was on the move now to set all things right, like he promised, and it was going to be through the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. There's a very well-known passage, many of you know it by heart, in the Gospels where Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, meaning I want you, I want to follow Jesus, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the idea of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. You say, I want Jesus. I want the kingdom of God. Fine. Follow me. Okay, I'll follow you. How, how do I do it? There's the cross. Pick it up and follow me. Every day, follow me. There's no escaping that reality. The call to follow Christ it's not a vague one. It's a clear one. If you want to come after me, you want me as your king, pick up your cross and daily follow me. And to the genuine believer, that's no big deal because you want Christ and you hope in Christ. But to the false one, that will become very burdensome eventually and they will walk away. Listen to what also Jesus said in John 12. He says this in verses 25 and 26. He says, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I, I am there, my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the question again, which kingdom shall you pursue and seek? What shall you love? More importantly, who shall you love? Is it your life? Is that the number one thing? And you, you might say right here, well, no, I, I don't think it's my life. I don't love my life more in Christ. Well, do you love Christ enough to speak the gospel where you might get laughed at? It's nice when you're not having your life put on the line, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. I'll, I don't love him, my life more. But he says, look, you love this life more than me, you'll lose your life. You'll lose everything. The kingdom of God means that there's only one true kingdom and it's found in Christ. And everything else comes under that. Well, this is a big deal for the Samaritans because they, for they looked for the coming of Christ. They looked for the coming of the Messiah, meaning the one in the Old Testament, the anointed one. But they rejected most of the Old Testament. Remember that. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Samaritans were a half-breed. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and they were despised, absolutely, utterly hated by any Jew. These were people who only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They worshipped in a different place. They had a temple in a different place. They were hated in every way, shape, or form. And yet here comes Philip, and he's calling to them to believe in this Jew named Jesus. And that in Christ would come the kingdom of God. So to see that kingdom of God bound up in that person, that work, the agenda, the agenda of this Jew named Jesus is an absolutely life-altering moment for a Samaritan. But that makes sense because we've talked about that the gospel, the command of the gospel is that you repent. You have a change of thinking, a change of mind, so that you might trust in something other than what you have trusted. And for the Samaritan, they had to completely abandon what they were believing so that they might trust in Jesus. And that's what's happening. It's a wonderful thing, but it's a mind-blowing thing. So that's, that's Simon introduced. That's what's going on. Well, now we come to verse 13, where we see that Simon believes. So people are coming to faith, they're hearing the gospel, they're being baptized, and then all of a sudden it just says that Simon believed and was baptized. And then he continues with Philip. Notice that, he continues with Philip. The people of the city had turned from worship in the ways of Simon meaning they were no longer looking at him as the great one. That's important to note. He's no longer the great power of God. He's no longer anything. They're more consumed with this person, Jesus, now. So they turned away from Simon. They turned to the living God through Christ. They hear a message, and they convert. But we'll also notice how simple the description is. It's not fancy. There's nothing, no flowering words, not even a lot of detail, and that's there on purpose. Little detail is being given because it's not the focus of the story. And then we have, again, very casual, very short statement. Simon believed, 
He was baptized, and then he continued with Philip. And I think that part's noteworthy. He immediately connects himself with the guy doing the power. And I think that this is your first glimpse that maybe something's a little off. He doesn't sit there and believe in Christ and now go about his business of, of, of growing now in Christ, growing in the faith, sharing the faith. No, the first thing he does is he connects to this guy who has just come in from the outside and who is doing astounding works. He wants to be connected to the guy doing the preaching and the miracles. He's amazed at the power of Philip. And so we, I think we get the glimpse, but we'll see it in fullness in a moment, of what the real motivation of Simon is. It's just the beginning of how Luke uncovers the layers of this man's deceit. At this point, we might conclude, he, if, if that was the end of the story, we'd say, okay, he's a, a Christian. But when we see the story unfold, it becomes different. So we saw Simon introduced. We saw Simon believe. Then we say that, see that Simon sees. In verses 14, are you the only, am I the only one that every time I say Simon sees that you're thinking Simon says? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I practice this sermon a few times. Every time I'm like, <laughs> I'm a child. Um, anyhow, Simon sees, not says. Um, Simon sees in verses 14 through 17. Now, we have this parenthetical statement here. Okay, he sees something, and it's all built around this parenthetical moment where all of a sudden Luke stops the story about Simon and starts talking about the apostles. What's going on? Well, this is the first news so far in the book of Acts at the birth of the new church. It's the very first time non-Jews are responding to the gospel. Up to this point, it's been happening in Jerusalem. Now we have Samaritans. So what's very fascinating and very unique is that the Samaritans were the ones coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And beloved, you and I don't understand this. I don't think any of you have come from a culture that has such hatred for another people like the Jews had for the Samaritans. Intense hatred. It ran deep. We talk all about racial divides and and other things like that in, in America. We got nothing, absolutely nothing on the kind of hatred that a Jew had for a Samaritan. And for them to hear that now we got these vile, filthy dogs and they're saying they believe in Jesus, that requires a verification visit. Okay, we're not just accepting that. And so the news gets back. So this is a big deal and it gets back to Jerusalem and the apostles immediately say, we need to check this out. And they send... Peter and John. Why Peter and John? Because they were the leaders of the apostles in Jerusalem. So it requires a visit, verification, because anyone can claim it. But they know there's going to be consequences if this is true by the church back in Jerusalem. What are we going to do about this? How do we get over our hatred for these people? 
So we have a good example here of freely sharing the gospel wherever you go and calling people to repent and believe. You don't keep it for your friends. You don't hold the the gospel. I actually once talked to a guy, and he told me that he would not share the gospel with, I think it was his mother, stepmother or something. He hated her so much, he said, I want her to go to hell. Okay, I mean, that's kind of the idea, though. I don't want to go over there. One, I might die, but two, I despise those people. That's not the way of Peter, uh, Philip. Philip is running for his life from his, his fellow Jews, and he finds himself among a despised people of his, for, as a Jew, and the only thing he can think of doing is telling them about Jesus and calling them to believe, but also not assuming that just because they say they believe that they are believers. Now, Philip, remember, he's one of the seven, so he's a significant person. He's a man of authority and respect. He's a man you would trust. He's a godly man. He's an evangelist. He's able to do miracles and signs by the power of God. And yet, when the apostles come, he submits himself under their authority. That's important to note. Not because he was afraid that what he was doing was a fake work of God, but because he did cherish truth, and they were the apostles. And so he submitted himself to them and showed them, began to show them what's happening, having them meet the believers, and now something cool happens. He cherishes truth because he knows this. He knows that a false convert is far worse than a non-convert, meaning give me any day a non-Christian over a man who thinks he's a Christian, but he's not a Christian. I have tried to pastor false Christians, and it's miserable. It's absolutely miserable because they have nothing in their heart that desires to honor or to obey the Lord, so you're dragging them everywhere. A false convert is one who thinks he's saved, so he stops listening because he's good. I'm good. I'm good. Nothing in his life says he's good, but I'm good. I don't need to listen. The non-believer at least knows he's not a Christian, and you can talk to him. Well, these people have not received the Holy Spirit, so what's up with that? I will say this until we're done with Acts. The book of Acts is a transitional book, Everything is changing and evolving right now. And so what's happening is there's these moments in time like this story here and a couple of others where you'll see somehow the Spirit of God had not yet come upon these people. And so why, why, what's happening there? Why? Why is this? And is this the way we should expect it today? What you have again in the book of Acts is you're going to have people who are Old Testament believers, meaning they believe in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't know that he came in human flesh as Jesus. They don't know about his death, burial, and resurrection, but they do trust in Yahweh, the one God. And then God, because they are his, will bring them in contact with the gospel, the fullness of everything that Christ has finished the work, and they will believe. But in the meantime, they're in this weird in-between place. And so how do you know, up to this point, it's always been through Jews, how do you know if God is working among somebody as hated as a Samaritan? And so 
The way you're going to see it is by these unique events. Remember in Acts 2 that the Spirit came upon the people and they did two things. They spoke of the mighty things of God and they spoke in foreign languages, not known to them. They weren't in some ecstatic angelic language. That's not what's going on. They just spoke in other languages, so much so that people who spoke those languages said, hey, they're talking my language. That's cool. How do, and what are they hearing from them? Not gibberish. They're hearing them speak of the mighty acts of God. And what you have here is now the first of three other accounts in Acts where this occurs again. The first time is with the Samaritans. And then finally, with if you think they hated Samaritans, that's nothing compared to what a Jew thought of a Gentile. And the next two will be Gentiles who came to faith, but then they had this later moment when the Spirit came upon them. Why? Well, because for the Samaritan and the Gentile, they were seen to be far off. Ephesians 2 says this, you, the Gentile, who were formerly far off, now you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The problem is a lot of the Jewish believers had a hard time accepting that. They didn't want you to be that way. They didn't want you to be one of them. And so they had a hard time shifting their thinking to include Gentiles. Why? Because they got thousands of years of being told otherwise. And so when you read through the New Testament, you're going to find that one of the most abiding sins happening in the church is that of Jews and Gentiles not liking each other. You'll see it in 1 Corinthians. You'll see it in Romans. You see, in Ephesians, it is the controlling issue. Now, note that this act was accomplished through the apostles only. Only the apostles caused the spirit to fall. Nobody else could do it. Philip could do miracles, but he could not cause the Spirit to fall upon believers, only the apostles. Again, we see then that it's not a normal event. We shouldn't expect it today. We don't have apostles today. The reader ought to pause and ask, well, what's happening here? Again, very few details. And when you see very few details, you need to understand that's probably because it's not the key point. In verse 17, two simple points are made. The apostles laid their hands on people and the resultant reception of the Spirit. Nothing more. We don't know what that looked like, how it worked, or anything else. Just they laid their hands and they had something happen. Somehow they received the Spirit. But in some way, it was you were able to see it. You were able to see it because Simon saw that they received the Spirit. So he was seeing something. So what's that mean? Well, in chapter 10, verse 44 of Acts, don't turn there, just here. In chapter 10, verse 44, we see that happening to the Gentiles. These were Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. These Gentiles had come to faith, and the apostle Peter is there, and he lays his hands upon them, and they received the Spirit, and they spoke in foreign languages, and they prophesied. And so he was able to go back to the other apostles and say, hey, you know that thing that happened to the Samaritans? Yeah, it's happening to the Gentiles. How do you know that? 
Well, I preached the gospel to them. They believed Then I laid my hands upon them and they received the spirit. Nobody can debate it now. Now they know, wow, this gospel is not just for the Jew. It's not even just for the Samaritan. It's for those hated Gentiles. How can we deny it if that's what's happening? And then later on, the apostle Paul in chapter 19 happened, does it? He comes across some believers who were not fully understanding the gospel. The only part they understood and knew was up to John the Baptist, and that's where it stopped. And again, he then shares with them the fullness of it, of who Jesus was, what he came to do, what he did on the cross, that he died for our sin, he rose for our life eternal. They believe, and then he prays, and they also receive the Spirit. In each of those, tongues or languages happen, prophesying, and I suspect that that's what you have here, is that when they received the Spirit, they did those things, because in some way or another, Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed. What's interesting is you don't see any indication that who received the Spirit. Simon. No mention that Simon received it, he, but he saw it, and he's like, what's this? So we have a good example to consider the importance of verifying. Well, the next thing is he sees that, so what's he going to do? What does he do? He doesn't say, I want to receive the Spirit or anything else. The first thing he does, you can almost picture him with like this gray charcoal gray suit with stripes and, and a little fedora, and he reaches into his front pocket and whips out a big old roll of bills. And, so what's it going to cost? How much do I need? What he does is he immediately goes, notice what it says in verse 18. The Spirit saw, I mean, Simon saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the hands. He offered the money. He said, give me this authority, or give this authority to me as well so that everyone whom I lay my hands on can receive the Holy Spirit. So now we take this new unexpected direction. Simon sees that the giving of the Holy Spirit is happening by the apostles, and his reaction is one of amazement. He sees something, and he wants it. And he recognizes that it is the apostles. I want you to notice that. It, who, he's not talking to Philip. He's talking to the apostles. And he sees they're the ones that got the authority. He doesn't possess it. He wants it. And now we get to see his heart. He now is offering them money. He's thinking that this is a commodity that he can purchase. Why? Well, because that's how you did it back then. If you were a magician, you would have followers and you would charge them and they would come and say, we want to learn the magical arts from you, oh great power of God, Simon. And he would say, well, this is what it costs. You have to pay me this much money every month. You will live with me. You will do my cooking, my cleaning, everything. You'll be basically my slave. And as we go along, I will teach you the magical arts and you will be my apprentice. And that's just what you did is, and so you wanted to become a magician. You whipped out your money roll and you started peeling off the bills until you got enough that he would say, I'll teach you. So he's just thinking like he does as an unbeliever. All right, so they got a power I don't got. I want it. How much is it going to cost me? What's interesting is, guess who he's completely walked away from now? 
Philip. He was all, remember? He believed and continued with Philip until apostles do something Philip can't do. Oh, I'm over with the apostles now. Philip, he's chump. I, 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 he wants the power. It's all he's about. That's all he is. He was the man astonishing everybody. He was the man doing all the cool stuff and everybody loved him. Then Philip comes in, steals his thunder and he does bigger things. So he said, okay, I'll jump on that bandwagon. And now I'm hanging with Philip. And then Philip brings down two apostles and they start doing something that Philip can't do. So now he's over with the apostles and the whole, now he's whipping the money out saying, give me this. And in this simple fact, we see what was the hope of Simon. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, has nothing to do with Jesus, has nothing to do with denying himself, taking up his cross and following him. It has everything to do with power, miracles, and authority. Philip had come, has come, he shifted all that tension. Simon loses it, now he wants it back. It's so similar to what you see throughout history, even to this day. You have people, whether they're in the pulpit or they're in the pew, they want blessings, they want healing, they want anointing, they want money, they want prosperity, prosperity, they want a happy life or marriage. In fact, I remember a freaky thing in Ethiopia. You know I preach long, you guys, any of you that have been here. I take my time through a book, and uh, I was teaching pastors in Ethiopia. It was during a break, and one of them mentioned... Um, they heard I preached for, I took a long time to get through a book. And I said, yes. And they asked, well, like how long? And I just said, well, I preached through the book of Romans over seven years. And their eyes went wide. They couldn't believe that because they're not used to that kind of preaching. But he ran away. You know, you're in this courtyard eating a roasted uh, wheat. And you're just tossing your mouth and hoping you don't die from some sickness. And he goes running off, and then he comes back, and this guy is wild-eyed, and he, he, he has a friend. And, the, and he says, tell me, is it true you took seven years to preach Romans? I said, yes. And he grabs my hand and puts it on his head. He says, bless me. Give me that anointing. I'm like, no. <laughs> no, I don't do that. That's not how it works, bro. <laughs> and I, so I had to explain to him, look, you got to exegete the text and just let the text say what it says, which is what I'm teaching you every day here. That's what we're doing. And you'll have more than enough material to preach. But it's not me putting my hand on you and now you get what I, whatever you think I got. It's not that great. Um, but it was a very weird moment. Uh, I'm like, Phew, that was strange. Matt Miller's over to the side kind of chuckling. Oh, that was fun. Anyhow, that's totally not any point. Um, but he wants this. So he bribes. That's what people want. They want that kind of a mantle. Give me the mantle of Elijah. So when that kind of a person will hear the gospel, unless the Holy Spirit works in the heart so as to change that heart, all they'll do is look at the gospel for what it will do for them. Some of you do that in this room, perhaps. You're looking not at the gospel as it is, but what it can do for you. And that's all that matters. There's a song I love by Fernando Ortega. 
It's called Give Me Jesus, and, and it goes like this. It says, in the morning when I arise and when I am alone, and when I come to die, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. And there's a lot of people who would call themselves Christians who would not be able to say that in truth because they want the world and they want Jesus. They want the world. They want a happy marriage. They want a a complete family. They want a comfortable life. They want a body that works. They want whatever. And they want Jesus. And they see that Jesus is the way to get it. And they forget passages where Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace, but I came to separate. I came to separate husbands and wives, mothers and daughters, brothers and sisters. That's not a gospel. That's not an American gospel. But that's the true gospel. He says, you take up your cross. You deny all the other things. They are not what drive you. They are not your love. They are not your hope. Christ alone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul calls the gospel the glory of Christ. That is the essence of the gospel. The gospel is Christ's glory. The benefits of that is that we get forgiven sin, things that, um, whatever your name is, Grayson, preached such a good sermon on, right? The benefits of salvation. How many of those wonderful things did your soul say thank you? But that's not the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is just Jesus. John Piper once asked, a group of pastors of which I was part of, he said, if you could have everything you've ever dreamed, everything you hope would ever happen in your life, everything that would bring you so much joy and the things that you ache for, and you could have all of that to its fullness for all eternity in heaven, but not have Jesus, would you take it? And I had to be honest, in my own mind, I'm like, I'd be tempted toward that. When you think about these things, what what you're going to find, beloved, whether you believe me or not, is, is God has a way of just stripping you away of all those things. I have spent enough time with enough dying people to watch time after time after time, people with dreams and hopes, and now it's time to die, and it's never the right time. And God just strips it all away, and you're just lying there. And everything you thought you were going to get, all the things you thought would matter, you start to realize none of it matters. But Jesus is enough. It begins and ends with him. He's the glory of the gospel. But that's not what Simon saw, beloved. He didn't see that. Jesus was just the means to a different end, a means to become great again, a man respected and feared. And so in verses 20 to 24, you find that at the end part, Simon now hardens himself. Peter responds very quick and very harsh. Anyone who says, oh, you're not supposed to be harsh, then you don't read your Bible. 
because it's all over the place. And this is a harsh statement. He says, may your silver perish with you because you suppose you could obtain the gift of God with money. He says, may your silver perish with you. What's he saying there? Doesn't sound that bad, maybe in English. But that word, uh, Peter, now, that word perish is actually a, a very important word. It's used in the Bible to describe the destiny of every person who does not have their trust in Jesus Christ alone. It is one of utter destruction. It is one of ruin or complete undoing. It is a picture, uh, the word used against a wall where every stone has been knocked down. Not one stone is on another. It's hell. What Peter is saying is this. He doesn't see Simon and say, well, Simon just needs a little instruction. No, he understands who he's dealing with now. And Peter, the apostle, looks at him right in the eye. And he says, you know what your problem is? He's like, you, now listen, because this is actually a rather literal statement of what he is saying. He says, you can take your silver and go to hell with it. That's what you can do. You let that perish. You let that go to hell with you. He sees his heart now, and he knows what he's dealing with. This, this word is used in, by Jesus in Matthew 7, 13. The way, the way uh, against the gospel, the way is broad that leads to, and here's the word, destruction. In John 17, 12, Jesus prays to the Father and says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them, here's the word, perished, except for Judas, who was the son of perdition. He was ordained to. In Romans 9.22, Paul talks about how God endures with great patience those who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In Hebrews 10.39, the writer urges people to be those who have faith to the, have faith to the salvation of the soul as opposed to those who shrink back at some point. The genuine believer pushes on. But if you shrink back, he says, you shrink back into destruction. But you all know, most of you at least, a verse by heart that uses the verbal form of this. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not what? Not die, it's perish, it's this word. Shall not go to hell, not, shall not suffer destruction, but have eternal life. So he's saying to Simon, you have no part in this work. You're going to hell. Why? Because he thinks that this is something that he can purchase. And so he says in verse 21, your heart is not right. Literally, it's not straight. He's got a crooked heart. So on the external side, you say, well, he believed. He got baptized. Yeah, but on the inside, nothing changed because God has not done that work that needs to happen. So it's still twisted and crooked and under the power of sin. But then Peter shows kindness and he tells him, so do something about this. What is it? 
It's repent. Verse 22, therefore repent of this wickedness. Pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He's like, what you need to do then is have a change of mind. Stop thinking that this is something you can buy and go and pray earnestly, meaning pray seriously to God that he might change your heart. Not a quick little prayer, not a clap on the back. Well, we'll pray for you. Not a passing thought about your guilt, but rather a heart of repentance that's consumed on how great of a sin and sinner he is and a burden that only God will forgive him. Peter speaks to him the truth, and it's not pretty. It's not good. He says in verse 23, why do I tell you to repent and pray to God and perhaps be forgiven? Because I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy there. Deuteronomy 29, where God warns Israel, look, if you turn your heart from me and you turn to God, false gods, all that's going to ultimately result for you is a bitter soul until you descend into hell itself. Some of you, as mom and dads, you've got rebellious kids maybe heading that way, and you need to be able to look at them and say, look, I can't make you believe, and I will not be able to force that, but I will tell you this, and I will tell it to you truthfully. You go that way, it may taste good for a while, but it will ultimately become eternally bitter for your soul for all eternity. You need to pray earnestly that God would change your soul and that he would give you Christ. That's, that's, you, you have a rebellious kid? You tell them that. When I say that, I'm talking about an adult child who's saying, I don't want this. The lie of Satan and the lie of your heart tells you every day that that way of sin will be the way of joy. And until you're consumed by the harsh reality of what sin always ends up doing to you, It will not change. And so Peter goes on to say that Simon was not free from sin, but he was still in bondage. So whatever it was that Simon had believed, it wasn't the true gospel. Now, let's notice 24. But Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves. What does Peter, the apostle, say? Pray earnestly for yourself that God might do it. What does Simon do? You do it. It, I've seen this kind of thing happen over and over again. It it might show itself different ways, but it's always the same thing. Here's the way of salvation. I'll go this way. It's just always this, I'll do it a different way. I know, I know, I got it. There was a guy that, uh, that used to say, I know, I know, and I just wanted to punch him. I'm not joking. It's like, you don't know. That's your problem. And you think you're so smart, but you're not. You're a fool. And you're heading down a path that is going to destroy you. I know. I know. No, you don't. Simon, take your silver. Go to hell with it. Or pray earnestly for yourself that God might take this from you. Simon, you pray for me yourself. I don't want this. The parent, when dealing with a rebellious heart, is just, if they're a wise parent, is always wanting the child to see repentance, right? 
You want them to see that this is not the right way and repent and go the way that is right. What is the child doing? The child is always listening and trying to figure out a way to diminish or deflect the sin off of himself. That's all Simon is. Listen, the the love of money and power will corrupt the soul. Simon is an example of it. Paul talks all the time about sordid gain. What's that mean? Well, it's this idea of of leaders and people in the church seeing the, the church and the gospel as a way to make money. Today we hear of it, of how you can send in your seed offerings. You send in your seed offering and then God will do such and such for you and you'll receive back a blessing. You just need to believe it. You need to claim it. In the name of Jesus, you claim your victory in Jesus and your power over your sickness and your this and that. But by the way, send in your money to us. As if if they actually believe that vile vomit, why can't they in the name of Jesus pronounce money to come their way? Why do they have to go through all these little tricks to get you to send you your money? Yet people send them millions upon millions of dollars every year. It's just sordid gain. But lest you think it's just those people, men all over the place in ministry have learned how to monetize. That's the, the catchphrase nowadays. What you need to do is you need to learn how to monetize your ministries so you can maximize your impact. See, because it's all about you and your teaching and, and you need to figure out how you can make some money off that. So you have so-called shepherds who will abandon a church that is a faithful church so they can go to a bigger church so they can make more money. You have so-called people of God who will abandon a faithful church in search of something fancier, something with a wow factor. But all of it ultimately will be shown to be as bankrupt as Simon's heart. So let me, let me just end it this way, and it'll be very simple. In this story, what you have is really a call to bring the gospel. Philip comes into a city, a people he would hate naturally, and he comes with the gospel. He preaches the gospel. And what happens is you get different responses. You have some who truly believe, and there will be a point of joy for them and you. It'll be wonderful. You will also get those who will laugh and mock and, and revile you. And that's not fun, but it doesn't hurt you. The saddest and hardest ones will be those who claim to believe, and then sometimes years later will shed Jesus like they did dirty clothes. And they will never walk again. Kim and I talk about this, having lived here for now over a quarter of a century. There is almost no part of Kenosha that we can't drive through with it without at some point just sort of shaking. You'll see us. If you were in the car with us, you'll see one of us shaking our head. And it's like, what are you doing? I'm just thinking about. And it's another person that we had in the church who maybe we baptized, disciples, spent time counseling, encouraging, and they're nowhere to be found. They've abandoned everything. And so though it's a wonderful ministry, on another level, there's that ache. But that doesn't matter, beloved. You have no power over a person's response, including your own child. All you can do is be faithful, like, the, like Philip, like the apostles, to call people, call them to repent call them to believe, and warn those who you see wandering from it 
of the, of the doom that is certain on the other side. That's all you can do. But what you have here is simply a man who was an almost Christian, and God in his mercy exposes him. Next time I preach, we'll look at a real Christian in the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that you will prepare us to go home with much hope and joy, thanksgiving, that you would give us also a sober mind to consider these things, examine our ways before you, take our faith seriously, to ask what it is and to whom do we believe, and that we make all the certain of your calling of us. Let us be people filled with joy, trusting in you. We ask in your son's name. Amen.